Matthew chapter 22, we'll be reading in verses uh, starting in 15, and we'll finish through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted out how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarii. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his uh, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in Mary, Marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I want to bring to you a sermon this morning entitled, What Do You Think of Christ? What do you think of Christ? This is Jesus' question to uh, the Pharisees over in verse 42. And he says, what do you think of Christ? Who is, whose son is he? Tomorrow on July 4th, 2016, we'll celebrate a nation that is 240 years old. I'm not sure if you are um, one of those who reads different 
uh, news magazines. I know the, the uh, news channels are playing things about our nation, but it always seems like around our nation's birthday, there's always something written about the founding of our nation. And uh, I've discovered as I've read a couple of different articles, even this week and last night, and even looked at one this morning, that there was a day when Jesus Christ and the principles of the kingdom of God were the bedrock of many of the lives of the leaders, the founding fathers of this nation. To be sure, they had their blind spots, and you and I could point to them, and we could say they had places of sin that uh, they led our country in, or they led their lives in, that we would not uh, uh, say we're following Christ. But if you read some of their letters and what they said, there are many of them that followed Christ with everything that they were. Most of them that followed Christ didn't follow Jesus for political expedience. Many of them saw their serving in office, in public office for our nation, as really service to Jesus. And many would have chosen their personal walk with Jesus Christ over any public gain that they ever received from serving. The day that you and I live in and the culture in which we live in is a culture in which Jesus Christ, His principles, His kingdom, His followers are ridiculed and belittled very often. Christ's followers are being analyzed and criticized and marginalized, and oftentimes in our nation they're even demonized. A recent Gallup Gallup poll that I read uh, was astounding to me. Back in 1971, 71% of Americans reported their religion as Protestant, and 1% of Americans reported their their religion as none, no religion. 2015, 60 years later, 59 to be exact, 38% of Americans say they're Protestant and the nuns, those who report that they have no religion, had risen to 17%. So in 60 years, we went from 71% identifying as Protestant to 38%. The trend is troubling, my friends. And if you remember just a couple of weeks ago on returning from the Southern Baptist Convention, I reported to you that church attendance is down in our convention churches Uh, membership is down, and more troubling, baptisms are at an all-time low in the Southern Baptist Convention. Why is that? I could give you many, many reasons, but the bottom line is people reject God, and certainly they are rejecting Jesus. This is what our text is about this morning, one way that they are rejecting Jesus, and I want us to identify with that even today. But before we get there, let me just say that what we need to understand is the broader picture of people rejecting Jesus, and why are they doing so? Some people aren't really hearing the good news, and that's not what the sermon nor this text is about. But let's be clear this morning, there are uh, people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world, next door to you, and for some of us in our own home. And the fact of the matter is, we aren't sharing the gospel. And we need to do so. Another reason people reject Christianity or reject Jesus is that they judge Christianity, they judge Jesus based on the sinners who are in the church. I hear this in our community, I hear it in other communities where uh, people are looking at the church in general, but let's be clear, people are looking at our church and saying, well, your church is just full of hypocrites. I've heard it. I'm not sure if you have. People in the church are worse than the people in the world. To which I respond, our church is full of sinners. I hope that they know they're sinners and that they are asking God to transform them and to forgive them and they're becoming more and more like Christ. I've heard people say, well, the church just does more harm than good. 
And these are certainly reasons that people give for rejecting Christ and for not wanting to hear the gospel as I am trying to share it with them. But the ultimate reason, the bottom line, that people are rejecting Christ is that they and their hearts are not willing to submit to the authority of a king. They're living an independent life and will not surrender to the God who creates and the God who redeems and the God who will hold us accountable for our sin. Some people do so explicitly and loudly. Some people internally and quietly. Whatever the case, rejecting the king is a reality and that is what our text is addressing this morning. Jesus has asserted his identity and his authority in both symbols and parables saying to those who are around him, saying to us, the readers of of Matthew's gospel, I am the promised Messiah come from God to both judge and redeem. I am king and will be king forever. And once someone asserts that kind of authority, we have a response to make. You see, Jesus came into town as the Messiah. He spoke in the temple as the Messiah. He healed as the Messiah. He taught in parables, revealing the religious leader's rejection of him as the Messiah, showing God's judgment on the traditional religion that the Pharisees were selling and teaching to the people, he ultimately showed God's rejection of any of those who would not follow Jesus, the Son of God, who would not respect the Son of the King in that last parable in chapter 21. Those who would not follow after Him would be rejected. And when we get to chapter 22, we see Jesus coming to the ultimate rejection of God of those who would not follow. Down in verse 13, the Father says to those who were not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, Bind them, cast them out into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, my friends, you and I this morning confronted with the authority and identity of Jesus as the Messiah must respond to him and we must respond to him with the reality that hell is the punishment, is the ultimate destiny for not surrendering and submitting our lives to the king. And yet we live in a day and we attend a church and we are part of a convention of churches where I'm afraid there are thousands and thousands of people who will sit on a pew and not really submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, the reality of hell was taught to us in the scriptures with the intention of pushing hearers to turn to Christ. But like many in our day, this doesn't serve in this text as a catalyst for turning them to Christ or or bringing them to repentance, but rather it is hardening them and their hatred and hostility come out toward Jesus. So this morning, let me just set this text up for you to say, when someone, you know this to be true, when someone asserts authority in your life or in any realm, you have one of two responses to that authority. You either harden yourself and show your own authority, and so you try to undermine theirs and show your authority. We call this as as men just talking around, well, he bowed up to him. You know, you flex your own muscles when someone else bows up to you. So you harden yourself and show your authority, or you respond by recognizing that authority and placing yourself under that authority, submitting to that authority. Today it is the former. It's hardening yourself and showing your own authority that the text addresses. 
And so, what I want us to see in chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, is that those who reject the clear signs and teaching of Jesus, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, to be exact, reveal their rejection in these tests meant to undermine Jesus. Last week I spoke to you of a progression of response, a progression of hardening your heart. Back up in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 22, there was this this response to Jesus. Some responded in indifference and went their way. They paid no attention at all. Others pursued their own priorities. I go back to my own farm, my own business. And then others became hostile. And I think there's a progression in your life and in mine if we just pay no attention, if we respond to the authority of Jesus in indifference... We can't continue to do so. We follow after our own priorities. We try to ignore, but then our priorities stand up against God's. And so we end up in hostility, in hostility toward the king, toward any authority. But here, the the authority of Jesus as king is nothing less and nothing more than an attempt to discredit, disqualify, and displace Jesus as king. Pharisees had already been confronted with his authority and they had responded back in chapter 1 verse 45 with an idea that they wanted to arrest him and they began to plot against him. In verse 15 of chapter 22, our text today, we see them yet again plotting against Jesus. My friends, let me say to you this morning as we look at these three confrontations with Jesus as they try to undermine his authority and his identity as king, as messiah... This morning, you and I are sitting here and Jesus is asserting His authority not only in the temple precinct in first century uh, Israel, He is asserting His authority right here in a worship center in Poplar Spring and everywhere across the world, He is King. And you and I must respond to Him and we will respond either with submitting our lives to Him, surrendering all that we are to His kingship, inviting Him to be King of our life, transforming us to be like Him, or we will ultimately respond with hostility and try to undermine His authority. And I want to invite you today to go into this text with me and ask the Holy Spirit, am I undermining the authority of the king in my life in any way? Are there thoughts, actions, words that I am uh, 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 experiencing in my life that undermine the authority and ultimately reject Jesus? And so I just want to say to you, as they undermine his authority and assert their own, and as you undermine his authority and assert your own, this means that any authority that comes up against you will be enemy number one. The reality of that in your life and in mine is we're okay with Jesus until He stands against something or says something that I don't like. Until the Bible says I have to stop this or start this or get rid of this or change this or my life has to go down a a road of suffering or a trial that I'm not interested in. I'm okay with Jesus as long as He's pushing my way. But when He asserts His authority and says, Trust me, I am the King. Suffering is part of the 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 following of Jesus, then we begin to say, no, your authority is asserting itself against mine, and we undermine it, we question, and we confront Him, and those who raise themselves up against our own individual authority become enemy number one. And that is what has happened in this text. May it not be so 
in our lives. You see, he is king. And you will either surrender your life to him now or you will bow the knee in eternity. May it not be that we get to verse 13 of chapter 22 and never have bowed the knee. Because there is an eternal destiny. And you either serve the king as one who reigns with him, or you will serve the king by showing his greatness in eternal punishment. And that is meant not to harden you, but to soften you and bring you to the king. So this morning, let's look at these attempts by those who are actively rejecting Jesus as they try to expose the insufficiencies in him that will ultimately undermine his authority. And we'll also watch, by the way, I want you to take particular note this morning of Jesus and his response to their questions. I think we will see an uncommon wisdom, an unquestionable brilliance, and an unimaginable precision as Jesus answers the exact questions that they have devised to trap him. Such that in the end, we'll see the crowds are astonished and the critics are silenced by our Savior. As we jump into it, I just want to say the application this morning is twofold for us. Number one, I want you to be asking yourself, am I undermining the authority of Christ in my life in any way? And number two, how can I respond then to others who undermine the authority of Jesus as we share the gospel? Am I undermining the authority of Jesus in my own life? And how do we respond to others who attempt to undermine the authority of Jesus. So in this text, there are three confrontations and then one rebuttal by Jesus. Let's go through them quickly if we can. We'll spend more time on the first one than we will on the second two. Verse 15 begins our text, and I want you to note, the Pharisees here are the first to come against Jesus, and they were plotting how to entangle him. Notice two things there. They're plotting, but Jesus, the Son of God, and his spontaneous reaction. They've had time to think about this. They've come up with how they want to trap him. Jesus, on the spot, responds brilliantly, and I love to see that. Secondly, their purpose is to entangle him. They are trying to embarrass him, trip him up, get him caught in his own words, the Bible says, and so as they try to attack him with these questions that they've plotted against, it is significant for you and I to note that they want Jesus to answer a question in a way that exposes either idolatry before God or insubordination before earthly authority. And either way they win because his authority is undermined both ways. So note verse 16 just as we begin. They're not even confident enough to come themselves. The Bible says they send their disciples. So the Pharisees have been plotting. They don't come to Jesus. They send, as David Platt calls them, some wannabe Pharisees. They send their disciples to ask Jesus these questions, and they come and ask Jesus. Secondly, I want you to note there that the Herodians come along with them. This will be a little significant in our text because these are unlikely companions of the Pharisees. The Herodians, as you could probably surmise from the name, were supporters of what we would know as the Herodian dynasty, those who were named Herod, as you know. Up in Galilee, there's a Herod still ruling, but Rome had taken over uh, uh, Jerusalem in A.D. 6. And so there was no longer a Herod or one of the Herodian dynasty on a throne because he had been deposed in A.D. 6. And so those who had come in, the Romans imposed a tax, and the Jews would naturally be opposed to that tax. 
So that sets up Pharisees, Herodians. They don't ever get along, but in this case, they come and they are unified on their hatred of Jesus and their hostility to Him. So they come with a question. All right, let's move. Verse 16, notice they begin with flattery. Don't miss this part. There are times, kind of as an aside this morning, that you can undermine the authority of Jesus in your life and you begin with nice statements about Jesus. Jesus, we know you're true. We know you teach the truth. We know that you're not influenced by others. You're not... You're not driven by the fear of man. You don't care what anybody else says. You're going to say the truth because you're true and you teach the truth. And so they begin with flattery. But I want you to notice that third one that I want to see, not only that you're true, not only that you teach the way of God truthfully, but they say you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. You're not reading people's faces and responding based on how other people are responding to you. You're not driven by the fear of man. That's the one that they're going to attack here. So I want to say, because of that, I'm going to say that Jesus is being questioned here. He's being attacked and His integrity is being questioned. And so let's look at the question, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? This is significant. Told you that in AD 6, Rome took direct control of Jerusalem. They imposed what's called, what's called, known as a poll tax. It was resented by the Jews. It was paid by a Roman coin here in the text, a denarius. This move led to a revolt by a Galilean prophet named Judas. And so think about this. They are sitting there trying to trap him. The Bible says that clearly. Jesus says, why are you trying to trap me? He's going to call them malicious in just a moment. Why are you trying to trap me in this? And they are indeed trying to trap him. And think about what they're thinking. There was a a Galilean prophet named Judas that came down and started a revolt. Here's another Galilean prophet that is that has proclaimed his own messiahship. He's come in with a big crowd from Galilee. Let's see if we can turn Rome against him as well. Because the revolt was smashed by Rome. And so, if this Galilean prophet, Jesus, rejected the poll tax, he's placing himself in an unpopular and perhaps dangerous position with Rome, in subordination to the earthly authority. On the other hand, if he is for the poll tax, then he loses popularity with the Jews. And so, either way, the Pharisees say, no matter what he does, is he going to be more afraid of the Romans, or is he going to be more afraid of the Jews? In his answer, either way, we've won and turned somebody against Jesus. We've undermined his authority. Furthermore, with the Jews, I want you to note, the Bible seems to point this out when he says, Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. And then down in verse 21, he talks about the rendering on the coin and the inscription on the coin. This would have been to the Jews uh, a hatred, uh, a hated thing in this coin. The, the coin would have had the picture of Caesar on it and an inscription that indicated he is God, which both speak to the first and second commandments. So I think the Pharisees are trying to catch him in this idolatry, but Jesus' brilliance, look at this, he says, show me the coin. I think it's significant that he calls them hypocrites in verse uh, uh, 18, and he says, why do you put me to the test, hypocrites? Jesus says, show me the coin. Isn't it significant the Pharisees have a coin, but Jesus doesn't? 
They're holding the coin that they're trying to trap him in. And so Jesus, if you're for it, then you lose popularity with the Jews because you are taking part in this idolatry of Roman coins. So don't even think a Jew would carry a coin with a graven image of a false god on it. They're accusing him of this. And so he says, show me the coin. They did. And what does Jesus say? Look at it with me in verse 20. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Caesar's. So Jesus says, therefore, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They are trying to trap him. And Jesus answers with this idea, I think, you guys are trying to put me in a corner with a false dichotomy. It's not one or the other. You don't either serve Rome or serve God. Now, this is not the point of the test that Matthew is taking, but let's take a bit of an application here and say, Jesus is clearly showing us that you can live as a faithful follower of Christ under an earthly government. Paul's going to take that up in Romans 13. Peter's going to take it up in 1 Peter. We'll not deal with that today, but Jesus is saying to us, you can faithfully be a citizen of the government that is over you and be a faithful follower of Christ. It's not one or the other. And he brilliantly just shuts them down in saying, that. And so he says, you have put me in this false dichotomy. You're trying to trap me by creating this false dichotomy. And I'm telling you the truth. You can serve both. The point is this. Jesus is not serving this group or that group. He's the Messiah. And I want to say to you, we undermine Jesus and his authority when we bring him into these false dichotomies much this same way. Just briefly, the problem of evil that a lot of people ask about is this false dichotomy. We say in the problem of evil, if God is altogether good, then how is this evil happening in my life? God, if you're all good, how is suffering occurring in the world? And so, God, you either are not all good or you're not all powerful. Because if you were all good and all powerful, there would be no suffering. And so we put God in this. And so people reject God because they look around and they use their own logic. And they say, God, you can't do all of these things. And we bring this out to our God. Maybe more close to home for some of you, although that's pretty close for a lot of folks. I would say we also try to manipulate what we believe about Jesus when we say statements like this. God, if you really loved me, this would not be happening to me. I would not, this couldn't happen in my life. My spouse wouldn't do this or, or my job would not be uh, uh, eliminated if, this, if you loved me. Or God, if you really loved me, I would have this or I would be this or I would be there. God, do you really love me? And so we question God based on this idea that God, if you did love me, this would be happening. Or if you did love me, this wouldn't be happening. And we put God and undermine his authority in our own loves, our own uh, 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 ideas of the world just like they were doing here. My friends, don't undermine the, uh, the authority of Jesus by questioning His integrity. He is Messiah and King. He's not driven by the opinions of men or nations or even individuals. Not you, not me. As God, listen, He sees all. He knows all. He is working in the whole of creation for His glory and for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose for your good. That's our God. Don't undermine His authority. Second attempt to undermine His authority comes beginning in verse 23. The Pharisees are those who go away in verse 22. So the same day the Sadducees came to Him. I want you to note in 
the Sadducees, I always have to say this, if I ever come up to the Sadducees, and I know you love my corny jokes, the Bible's going to tell you here, they don't believe in the resurrection, that's why they were sad, you see. And Jesus says that here, that they don't believe that. And so they're going to question him about the resurrection, but they're going to use another example to get to that, and they're going to accuse him of inconsistency in his beliefs. And so they bring up the, the idea of Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, called the Leverite marriage. And what happens there is if a man dies, he is required by the law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, to, um, I'm sorry, if a, if a man dies, his brother is required to marry his, uh, his widow if they have not had any children. And the, her firstborn then would be the offspring, the, the heritage the one who would carry on the name of the man who died. And these guys give an extreme example of that. And they say, so there were seven brothers. And the oldest one married this lady. He died. And it goes all the way down. Even the, even the seventh one, the youngest one, married this lady. And then they all died. And then, verse 27, after all of them, she died. Their question, though, even though couched in marriage, I don't believe is really just about marriage, as Jesus will indicate in His answer. They're really asking about the resurrection. Note with me, if you will, back up in verse 24. If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. That word raise up there is the same cognate as the resurrection, which is uh, featured in this entire story. Their idea, the Sadducees' idea of resurrection, since they didn't believe in the resurrection, their idea was you have children and they're raised up. That's your resurrection. The only way you're going to have immortality is through children because there is no resurrection to them. So they're really confronting Jesus on his theological beliefs. And Jesus is going to respond very wisely to them. And I love verse 29. I have, I have I've smiled at it all week. Jesus responds to the Sadducees and He says, You are wrong. Because you don't know, you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And I've prayed all week, God, help us to know the Scriptures and help us to know the power of God and not undermine your authority in being the power of God. Jesus is the power of God and He is the author of our Scriptures. And so Jesus says you're wrong because this raising up that you're talking about is not resurrection at all. If the only sort of resurrection that you believe in was posterity, having an heir, then you don't believe in resurrection. He's going to confront that in them. And so he says two things. First, you don't understand the nature of the resurrection life. So verse 30, he talks about this. Don't make this a, 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 a big deal that you spend a, just an inordinate amount of time on. Verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. I, I just want to say to you, because we're going to run out of time, be glad to talk with you about this more, but Jesus is saying the nature of resurrection life is not the same as the temporal life, earthly life that we live. So I'll make this statement and I'm going to move on. If anything, marriage is not less than what it is here. It is more in eternity. In other words, we're going to have marriage is about a love, true love relationship. And we're going to really know how to be in love relationships. Pure, godly love in eternity. So don't be afraid when you read that and think, Oh, well, I'm not even going to know my spouse or I'm not even going to know this. I think what we would take from this is it's more than, not less than, because our love is perfected then. And Jesus says, don't make resurrection life 
analogous exactly to earthly temporal life where we were given certain commands to live here and multiply and fill this earth in eternity. We won't even have that uh, uh, requirement in eternity. Love will be so much better. So don't be afraid of it. He says you don't even understand the nature of resurrection life. So God has the power to bring us into love relationships and the resurrection that And he is not hindered in his power. Secondly, he says, and by the way, the word that you do believe in, the Pentateuch, this is all that the Sadducees held as authoritative, the first five books of your Old Testament. He says it does teach the resurrection. And so he quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. This is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. It's significant here because both uh, all three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had all been long dead by the time that God spoke to uh, uh, Moses at the burning bush. And Jesus says here, quoting that, here's what God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So this is God saying, I am. And I am God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is not the God of the dead. In other words, God has the power to bring Abraham, who's been long dead on the earth, to life forever and ever. You don't even trust the power of God. What Jesus is saying to the Sadducees here is, you have a faith problem. You have not believed God that He is the God of the living and not of the dead. And He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so believe Him. It is faith. You must believe that God has the power to do so. Like the Sadducees, many look at Jesus and His Word and they look for inconsistencies. They look for, well, if marriage is this, then how could that even work in the resurrection? We can't even put those two together. Your view of the resurrection is wrong. Our view of this law is right. And so you're inconsistent. We look at things in the Word. Some of you question. You might undermine the authority of Jesus in your own life. Have excuses not to believe Jesus. And you know exactly what the Word of God says. And yet you find ways to not believe it. You find little things that help you not follow after it. My friends, it is a faith issue. Will you believe the clear teaching of Scripture? And will you submit to its King? God sent His own Son, His one and only Son. And He, He died and rose again. So you and I can see the power of God because Jesus is no longer dead. Don't undermine His authority. Believe Him. Trust Him. He can raise us up and He will. The final confrontation by the religious leaders found in verse 34 and following. The Pharisees discuss matters like this all the time. Which is the great commandment in the law? They talk about this. Do you remember? They're asking for which is the great of, I think, of their 613 commandments that they had found in the law. In the Pentateuch, those first five books, they had identified 613 laws, commands. And so they're asking Jesus, do you really understand the law? Can you really understand how to obey God? I think the the essence of this question is, Jesus, do you really know what will please God? And they're trying to trap Him. It says they're trying to test Him again here. Jesus identified the most significant one of the 613. And note, Jesus doesn't. 
He comes not to a practice or a practical commandment. He comes to a principle. And it's found in the Shema. They would have certainly been familiar with it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and then he quotes Leviticus 19. And the second, he goes further. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, not practical rules, but in principled love. Love of God, love of others. Do you want to know how to obey God? You don't put one practical rule and put all the others out of it. You take the principle of love. It's the principle of our God. God is love. And you take that principle and you apply it to every part of your life. Loving God, loving others. So let me say this to you. Don't undermine the authority of Jesus in your life, of accusing Him of some inadequate standard or understanding of truth and right. You see, we come to Jesus and we look and we say, there are other ways to please God. There might be other ways to obey Him. My friends, Jesus is the only one who is perfectly obedient. He's the only one that understood the law. He's the only one that knows the greatest commandment. And He tells you, if you want to obey God perfectly, love God, love others. Some people say, well, all this Christianity stuff, it's just an old, outdated religion. Jesus really wouldn't know what to say today. He really wouldn't fit in in our world today. I'd like to follow Jesus, but you just don't understand. I have my own personal views of God. And Jesus says, no, here's how to obey God. Here's what true righteousness is. Here's how to be in right relationship with our God. But undermine His authority, I think, by just saying, Jesus just doesn't get it. And Jesus shows them, no, I know God and I know obedience. And here's how to be obedient. And the call this morning, friends, is that Jesus created you and has given you His Word and will give you His Spirit and salvation. His ways are the ways that we should live. Trust Jesus. Follow Him. He knows true holiness, true righteousness, true obedience. And He can make you holy. So I end with this. Jesus finally, verse 41, responds to them with a question I began with. He looks at the Pharisees now and he says, let me ask you a question. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Now their answer would be very clear. It would not have been questioned who the Messiah, who the Christ, that is Messiah, who he was. They knew he's the son of David. It's very clear in the Old Testament. Don't miss the significance here of Jesus' question because just as he came into the city, there were those that were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. When he got into the temple, the children were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. This is a title that they had already seen Jesus accept on his own. And he says, who is the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say, he's the son of David. And now Jesus is going to quote Psalm 110. Aside here, note how Jesus affirms the inspiration of Scripture when he says, how is it then written by David in the Spirit? He's affirming the authorship of David and the inspiration of the Spirit in the Word of God. It's not our purpose, so let's move on. He's quoting Psalm 110, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus says, How then is it that David calls the Messiah Lord? Now, let me just jump to the end, because we're running out of time, and I want you to hear this morning, what Jesus says is, the Messiah is not only son of David, he is Lord. 
You believe He is the Son of David. I'm telling you, He's more than the Son of David. He's Lord of all. And you refuse to submit to the authority of the Lord of all. And my friends, this morning, I want you to come and see with me these Pharisees and religious leaders. They were the most religious people you could imagine. But they were undermining the authority of Jesus because of their own knowledge, their own righteousness, their own ways. And perhaps you've come into this place this morning and you are undermining the authority of Jesus. You're not willing to just listen to the text, to the King who has given us His Word, who is raised from the dead, who died for your sins, and He says, you come to Me, repent and believe, and submit to the authority of the King this morning. Friends, don't go from this place yet again saying, oh, He's a good prophet. He's a good teacher. He might even be the Son of David. But if you will not make Him Lord of your life and submit to His authority, you have no place with him in eternity he is not just the son of David he is David's Lord and his name is Jesus and he came to earth to give himself for you to shed his blood for your sins and he rose from the dead and he says I will bring you from death to life to live forever this is our king and my question is twofold Are you undermining the authority of Jesus in your life? Will you submit to Him? And friends, as we go from this place, our world is undermining the authority of Jesus in every way possible. Let us learn conviction to stand with Jesus. It doesn't matter what law is passed what culture says about him, what the, what the world says about Christianity, in the end, Jesus is king forever. We must respond to the rejection of our Savior with conviction, clarity, and kindness in the gospel. And I want to invite us to do so.